You may be seated. Well, good morning. Our scripture text is Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. It's in your bulletin, the second scripture lesson, or if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. But let's begin uh, with prayer, seeking help from our Lord. O Lord Jesus, we call upon you. We sit at your feet and seek to learn from you. And so be here in our midst by your Spirit, working as your word is preached in my heart and the heart of the hearers. And we pray, Lord, uh, for your presence and your guidance and your comfort. Give us your word. Dig it deep into our hearts, helping us to feast upon it and thereby feast upon you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything must die before it can come to life. Everything must die before it can come to life. What does that mean? How does that make any sense? A statement like this is exactly what was so hard for the disciples to wrap their heads around. And it is still hard for us unless God opens our eyes to see You see, in order for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life, he had to die. In order for sin to be dealt with, he had to die. For the wages of sin is death, and he bore our sins. And so for there to be life in his name, the incarnate Son had to die. You see, Christ conquered death by death, and then resurrection, so that you as well, through suffering and eventual death, may be resurrected. You see, everything must die before it can come to life. This is true individually as well, isn't it? For you to be made alive, you must by the Spirit put to sin the death that wages war against your soul. In order for you to live, you must die. In the world, the flesh and the devil, they do not want to be conquered. Your flesh, and by flesh I mean the sin that dwells within you, does not want to be put to death, which is part of the reason why the Christian life is often described as a war or maybe a treacherous journey. But this doesn't just happen within our hearts as individuals, but it happens all around us. The world does not want to submit to its Lord. And this creates division. It creates opposition. That fact that everything must die in order to live creates necessary opposition. So there's an opposition from within and without. On all sides, we are surrounded. And Paul summarizes this in 2 Corinthians when he says this, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, there's this opposition from within and without. See, the gospel has turned everything into a big sorting project. God is sorting your heart 
He's also sorting the world. As the gospel goes forth, and many believe, and many will not. God is sorting flesh from spirit. And there's necessary opposition then that comes with this gospel that is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And it is essential to it. And that necessary opposition is rooted in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we will see. Margaret Thatcher loved, she said to have loved this poem. She kept it on her desk. It goes like this. You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. And this is what we will see this morning. That Christ's death brought division before it brings peace. And so our outline will be simple. It goes like this. Opposition for the Messiah in verses 49 and 50. And then in the rest of the text, opposition in the Messiah. Opposition for and opposition in. In other words, he was opposed and went through fire, point one. And so we in him will also go through fire, point two. So first, let's focus on those first couple of verses there, 49 and 50, where he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would, it, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Interesting phrase. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. First note that although our translation and many others makes it somewhat difficult to get what Jesus is saying in verse 49 at the end, but he's simply saying this, how I wish that it were already kindled. In verse 49, Jesus is simply saying that he wants the fire that he came to cast on the earth to be kindled already. And so our first question must be this, what is the fire? What is this fire? You'd be amazed to know how much uh, debate is on this point when it seems pretty clear that Jesus defines the fire he speaks of in the verses that follow. Many argue that the fire refers to the Holy Spirit who was poured out on the church uh, in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost and fiery tongues. And there's a point there. But although uh, that's, that's not what Jesus is first and foremost speaking of, it, it definitely is a part of what he's speaking about. Remember, earlier in Luke, John the Baptist says that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Hmm. In other words, Jesus will baptize some in the Spirit and some with judgment. One example is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Israelites pass through the water. Paul says they're being baptized through the sea. But the Egyptians were baptized as well in judgment. So again, what is the fire Jesus is speaking of here? The fire is this, that as the word of the gospel goes forth, it will create division. It will create persecution and tribulation and the like. You see, the world must be refined with fire in order for us and the world to be made New And Jesus is the one in, in the end of Revelation to say, Behold, I make all things new. Some will be consumed by the fire and some will be refined by the fire. For all things must die, 
before they can live. And so Jesus wants this fire to be kindled already. But another question, why? Why does he want it to be kindled already? Why does he want that? If the fire is kindled, this is what it means. If the fire is kindled, then he has already accomplished his atoning work on the cross, which is exactly where he is headed right now in the story. And he knows it. He knows exactly what is about to happen and take place. If it, if it were kindled, that would mean that the baptism, that is an unfathomable torture and pain that he will endure for us on the cross, would be finished and accomplished if it were already kindled. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, does something very interesting that no other Gospel does. The Pilecki's know this very well, right? We were going through the Gospels in youth Sunday school. But the Gospel of Luke does something very interesting. Uh, starting in 951, going all the way to the middle of chapter 19, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. It's this very long travel narrative, his final trip to Jerusalem. Ten whole chapters devoted to him hiking to Jerusalem, knowing what he's about to do. He is about to die. And along the, along the, way, along the way, his language becomes more intense and more intense. Uh, more in the end of the world, so to speak. More fire and brimstone, so to speak. And during this trip, he exclaims, how I wish the fire was already kindled. It also means that if it is kindled already, the closer we are to the end, when he returns in fiery vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says explicitly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see, again, Jesus knew in order to save the world, he had to die. Our Lord reverses the curse of the fall by becoming the curse for us. He reverses the curse by becoming the curse. He defeats death through an atoning death. And in verse 50, this is what we see explicitly. Jesus knows that he must be baptized with suffering in order to bring us life. You see, this baptism Jesus speaking of is different than our baptisms, of course. This is a baptism of suffering and of affliction. Our Lord was crushed for our iniquities, so you may be purified and cleansed. There's a chance that uh, Luke is making a, an allusion uh, with this language uh, to Isaiah chapter 53. He was baptized with the wrath of God and the suffering of the cross in order that you would be baptized in his blood. As the old hymn says, would you be whiter Yes, brighter than snow, there's power in the blood. I'm tempted to sing it, but I'll not do that for you guys. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There is wonderful power in the, but, in, the, in the blood. Furthermore, our Lord Jesus was completely and utterly focused on this task at hand. This task of being baptized with suffering, he was focused. This, ba- this baptism of agony... In death, and it did not shake him. Nonetheless, he felt the anguish at the thought of it, which he himself says in Matthew 26, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. See, Jesus understood what he was about to undergo, and being both God and man, he felt the pure anguish of the moment. 
but also was perfectly set on doing whatever it took to save his people from their sins, to secure eternal salvation once for all. Your Lord Jesus, Christian, hiked to Jerusalem knowing he wasn't only going to be brutally put to death and tortured, but also that as man he would experience a separation from his heavenly Father, who will pour out his wrath on him, the very wrath that is due to us and our sins. Knowing this would happen, what did he do? He continued to hike through Jerusalem to die so that you may have life in his name. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. And now at the end of verse 50, Jesus, note he says this. He says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The word for accomplished here is the same Greek word Jesus says on the cross when he exclaimed, it is finished. It is finished. He is hiking to Jerusalem, awaiting the day that is shortly coming when he will say, it is finished. It's as if Jesus is saying here, for the joy that is set before me, I will endure the cross. I will despise the shame and I will sit down at the right hand of my father. But you see, when Jesus was on earth, he was met with major opposition. Major opposition. And what, was that going to change when he died? No. And he's alerting the apostles of this. Unbelief is all around us. How many oppose Christ to this day? But you see, Jesus wants us to expect this. Expect many to reject him. How did he die again? Opposition. His own people begged for his death. Do you oppose him? Some of you may oppose this Jesus outright here this morning. Maybe you are here, consider yourself still on the side of opposition. Ask yourself, should I continue in my opposition? Most of you do not oppose Jesus with your lips or tongues but our hearts oppose him through their lukewarmness often, don't they? And lack of love for what he has done for us. My friends, the God of the universe, God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us and endured the punishment that our sins deserve so that you would not have to if you believe on his name. How could you oppose such a God? As one song puts it, how many kings stepped down from their thrones for you? How many? In these first couple of verses, then, we have seen opposition for the Messiah. Now let's consider opposition in him. He says, in verse, starting in verse 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, so on and so forth. Jesus is bringing our minds to Micah chapter 7, uh, our first scripture lesson this morning. Uh, Micah prophesied to both kingdoms, north and south, Judah and Israel, after the division of the kingdom, same time as Isaiah. Um, both books are very similar. Uh, Micah is prophesying judgment on God's people and particularly mentions that all their political religious leaders have gone corrupt. Jesus applies this then to his own day. That's what's going on here. Listen again to the Micah text. 
Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Remember, this was about to be a really bad time. Both in Micah's day and in Jesus' day. But Micah says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. So what does that time centuries prior have anything to do with Jesus' day? It's like 700-something years prior. Well, all the leadership have become corrupt once again. And in the Gospels, the Lord himself comes to visit his own temple. And he finds Israel in the same condition it was before the exile. And then what does Jesus declare? Your house is left to you desolate. History was repeating itself. You see, the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, and so the truth of the gospel brings division, so much so that even when God incarnate comes to his own, they knew him not. They never really believed Moses and the prophets, and so they did not believe their own Lord. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That brings division. There's no neutrality when it comes to this gospel message. It brings grace or judgment, mercy or wrath. It brings broken homes closer together or it tears them farther apart. As Micah says, may we all say in our hearts, regardless of what happens to us because of it, as for me, I will look to the Lord. Regardless of the opposition, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. No matter what division or opposition comes our way, we must always say this with Micah, I will look to the Lord. And now, although Jesus' words apply to the period uh, between his ascension and his return, uh, there will be times that are more divisive than others. Jesus is not saying that in all times and in all places, the gospel will, be, uh, will bring the worst possible opposition it possibly can bring all the time, everywhere, all at once. Certainly not. This will wax and wane. There are times like Jesus' day and location when being faithful gets you killed. Jesus' day in the first century in general was a particular dangerous time to be a Christian in a way that is not true of other times and other places. But here is what is guaranteed to every Christian, in every time, and in every place. And it's this. Opposition will be a part of the Christian life. Opposition will be a part of your walk with the Lord. Division will be a part of your life. This is certain, that if you never face any opposition, or have never faced it, because of your Christianity, your belief, it is safe to say maybe you don't know Christ at all. It is that certain. You see, since Jesus is opposed, those of us who are in him will be opposed. And since the gospel brings judgment, it also brings division. For some will believe and some will not. And so in one breath we can say the gospel brings life and it brings death. For rejection means one thing, belief means the other. Many look at the cross, the baptism that Jesus underwent, and are appalled. For the cross is foolishness 
to the natural man. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And therefore, what does Jesus mean when he says, I did not come to bring peace? Didn't we just celebrate Christmas? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. What is going on here? Everything must die before it can come to life. Jesus isn't saying peace will never come. Rather, he's subverting, the, so to speak, the false notions of his disciples that peace will come right away, as they believed. Remember, he's about to die, and they will all die brutal deaths just like his. Not just the twelve, but many disciples after that for hundreds of years. And even in our day, in different parts of the world. Remember, this gospel goes forth and is often met with deadly opposition. Even in our day and age, everything must die before it can come to life. Christ's death brings division before it brings peace, ultimately. Christ's example of this is the household. Many homes are divided when the gospel is proclaimed to them. Many of you probably have experienced this in your own life. The gospel brings great opposition. Uh, In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that the apostles were teaching that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. You see. Becoming a a parent for the first time should be pretty scary. Should be pretty pretty scary. You don't uh, really know what to expect at all. You haven't Uh, parented before. You have seen other people parent. You have some idea of what uh, parenting should look like, but you really don't know what it will be like, and that's a big difference. You don't know what types of kids you're getting. That's a big thing. There's so many different types of kids. It's going to be a crazy lunatic, or what's this kid going to be like? Uh, We have a mixture in our house. Lots of, we have a couple psychos, that's for sure. And, and, and we, we don't, you don't you know when you first have kids how your life circumstances will change while raising them, um, where you're going to live. Except there's so many uh, unsure things. And notice I said it should be scary. For me, when we first had my first child, it was not scary at all. Why? Not because I was fearless, but because I was utterly naive. <laughs> utterly naive. I was 21. No idea what I was getting myself into. Glad I did it, but no, I had no idea what was going on. Totally naive. I had no sense of what the responsibility really meant. Uh, and many Christians come to faith in a similar way. You're never taught this point, that opposition will come. It will be difficult to be a Christian. It will be difficult. And so when troubles arise for Christians who don't learn this early on, it's a complete shock. It's a complete and utter shock. We often have this picture in the Christian life, in in our heads, uh, that the Christian life is like skipping around, frolicking in a field of daisies. Uh, Sometimes it is. But the Christian life in Scripture is more like a bloody war or a treacherous journey. Jesus, in our text, wants us again to recognize this very point. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself, for he is in danger. Now, this doesn't mean the Christian life is one of constant opposition. It also doesn't mean that we need to go seek out opposition for the sake of being opposed, like many foolish new believers do. Look at me. I was just arrested. Yay. 
It also doesn't mean just one simple thing. When we say opposition, it primarily is referring to opposition from others, uh, even those in our own home. But the Christian life is full of opposition of all sorts. Opposition in our own hearts, uh, the battle against sin, opposition of life's suffering, physical pain, the curses of the fall, in other words. The Christian life is full of trials and opposition, division. The faster you come to realize this, the better you will be able to face the trial. As Paul says in Philippians 1.27, For unto you it has been given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, as I mentioned earlier, division and opposition waxes and wanes depending on current life circumstances, where you live, what century you live in, etc. The passage right after ours, very interestingly, uh, Jesus, in the same breath, rebukes people of his day for not being able to discern the signs of the times. They had no idea what was around the corner. And those two texts are definitely connected. We, Christians, need to discern the time that we are in. Opposition is ramping up. Just when you think things can't get crazier, they do. We need to discern our own times and see the secularism that is around us for the threat to Christianity that it truly is. This should call us to be vigilant, especially in our homes, diligently teaching our children the faith, as Deuteronomy 6 tells us to do and exhorts us to do. It always, of course, is of the utmost necessity, but has become even more necessary today than in a long time. Having a robust Christian worldview, you see, is vital. We need to stand firm. It seems every time our culture takes a few steps down the road of moral decay, the church follows them just at a much slower pace, but still follows. We need to stand firm. Stop following the moral decay. Our culture doesn't set the standards of right and wrong. God does. Stand firm in the face of opposition. It is John Knox who once said, One man with the Lord is always in the majority. One man with the Lord is always in the majority. The truth is worth any division that may come our way, any suffering that may come our way. This gospel, the gospel of God, is good news. It is good news. It's the precious message of redemption that Jesus has mercy on sinners who come to him. Let it tear my life apart if I still have God. For what can man do to me? Jesus says in Luke 9, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Everything must die before it can come to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you uh, for the preaching of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the faith that you have given to us uh, so that we may know Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the compassionate, loving, merciful Lord that he is to sinners like us. I pray uh, that you would continue to be with us during this service, even as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Nourish your people as you have promised. And I pray in Jesus' name.